0: Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Howard Drew Karsh. I've been a realtor for over 30 years in Canada's largest market, and in the latter part of my career, I was co-founder of Canada's largest independent real estate brokerage, Right at Home Realty, with a roster of over 5,500 agents and growing. In 2020, I retired to start this podcast, and it's been a fabulous opportunity to meet with people and interview people in real estate and related fields, and to talk about our industry and their career. Today, our guest, and we're, we're thrilled to have our guest today, is Sam Mizrahi. Sam is the founder and president of Mizrahi Development. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Howard. You know, Sam, there's so much about you that people could be interested in. So why don't we take a few minutes to talk about, let you talk about your background, uh, Mizrahi Developments. I know you do so many different projects, and then we'll get into some questions about real estate. So Sam, on to you.
1: Sure. So I started um, really uh, working when I was 16 years old and started in consumer electronics before I was in real estate, selling batteries and uh, cassette tapes such as VHS tapes, Betamax tapes, and started it out of uh, high school and then uh, built that business up. Um, and from there, basically in the late 80s, um, I started um, real estate with one property rezoning it and getting entitlements for it up in Richmond Hill. Um, at Brookside and, uh, just off of Yonge Street. And then, um, uh, from there, of course, um, sort of another property and doing more rezoning works in, in Richmond Hill. And, and in 89, 90, we hit, um, you know, uh, one of the real estate recessions that we had in Canada at the time in Toronto. And so I was looking at, uh, other businesses to start up. I started a company called Dub Cleaners, which is a dry cleaning retail chain and started that in the early 90s and uh, built that up to 98 stores and took it public and private and had it both in uh, Los Angeles, California, and here in um, in Toronto. And uh, parallel to that, I was still doing real estate on the side and then in 2007, um, I basically uh, sold the company and divested the dove and uh, went fully into real estate and uh, built and started Misraeli Developments uh, to basically uh, have a niche market in uh, at that time in 2007-2008 um, real estate market in Toronto to do not only developments but construction and to have a vertically integrated company, basically from A to Z in terms of uh, d- uh, acquiring uh, sites, uh, rezoning them, uh, building them, marketing them, selling them and then um, uh, looking after them post-development as well. And um, we started with uh, one house, uh single family home. Uh, and then from there built uh, a number of other single family homes. And from there went into townhouses, such as the project we did at Lytton Park, uh, just off of Avenue Road. And then in 2010, started with our mid rise, uh, buildings on, in Yorkville, on Hazleton Avenue being 133 Hazleton, 181 Davenport and uh, 128 Hazleton. And, uh, and of course the one, uh, at Young and Bloor. Uh, and we also started, uh, acquiring sites and doing developments in, uh, in Ottawa. Uh, which was a very important marketplace for us as well.
0: Well, Sam, in addition to that, and I'm going to get back into real estate in a moment, I know you've also been a very active philanthropist. Um, do you want to talk about that part of your life? Because I think that's also really mm-hmm. interesting.
1: Yeah, um, you know, my my view has always been um, that there's sort of two sides of the coin. There's the entrepreneur side um, and there's the philanthropy side. And I think uh, as a... Um, Citizen of the world, or citizen, any 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 person, I think, has two moral responsibilities. One is um, uh, to look at how we can make the world a better place. And for me personally, uh, from an entrepreneur standpoint, uh, I was looking at how do we go out and um, uh, do better and 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 create fortunes and and help the community and, and economy. And from that standpoint, on a philanthropy side. We're looking at how can we change fortunes and how can we, uh, make an impact, uh, into the lives of others? So I think there's a symbiotic relationship between business and philanthropy that, um, business gives you the tools to make changes and help, uh, and, and give back to the communities, uh, and to the world that, that we're all part of. And it's been, um, uh, one of the DNA fabrics for me to, uh, look at how we can help uh, anyone or everyone that we come into contact with and uh, uh, be able to uh, make their lives better because uh, of them coming into contact with us. So we've been involved in many different uh, initiatives um, and we try to never say no when asked and try to um, uh, look at how we can uh, make the lives better for everybody that comes into contact with us or with our company. And uh, that's been something that uh, has been Uh, Very important to me um, from the time I was a teenager and and with the very first business that I started on giving back and uh, figuring out uh, with that responsibility, um, how do we uh, uh, make the, you know, the environment that we're in better?
0: You know, um, I I guess my, I had two introductions to you. One, uh, thanks both were uh, thanks to Bill, the Building Industry and Land Development. I think the first one was there was one chair left at the table of the AGM and you sat down next to me. And I realized this is my lucky day because <laughs> I got to talk to you directly. The second thing was also related to build. you And this was fascinating. You invited, I think it was the young build group. I don't know how I got in that one, but I was there. Uh, to your office on Davenport to talk about, which is clearly the, the most fascinating project that I know of is the one. And how you were able to secure the one. Um, um, for those that don't know about the one, perhaps you're a better person to talk about why it's so remarkable. I'll let, turn it back to you on that.
1: Sure. Um, the one is, I, you know, it was one Bloor Street West uh, where, where I got named from and basically took the address, which to me is one of the most important corners in Canada. Um, it is without question the most, it, it's the convergence in Toronto in terms of um, the artery of the young Bloor subway line. There's over 425,000 people that pass through there every day. Um, and uh, and it's really um, uh, I consider sort of the most important node in Toronto, if not Canada, from a lot of respects. And um, we we I looked at it basically back in 2013 and 14, and uh, none of the properties were for sale, of course, in that corner or anything like that. And it was owned by one family for 117 years, approximately, which was stories. And um, but the site required more than just uh, the corner. It required a larger assembly to take place in order to make something really um, uh, monumental or, or or effective. And um, nobody was a vendor. Nobody wanted to sell. Um, there were many developers for many decades who tried to put uh, a, a, an assembly together and and it failed. And and the reason was very simple: the, the family just did not want to. Divest of that corner and, and, um, there was a huge responsibility that they felt with it. And they, they, they were basically a no. And when I met with Ed Whaley, um, who's a directing mind and the owner of that corner along with the Stollery family, uh, in a partnership. And, uh, they, they were basically, no, it's not going to happen. And, you know, we're not vendors. We're not going to sell. And I spent nine months with Ed Whaley and, um, um, and his DA Deborah Scott, uh, there. Um, who uh, basically would give me the meetings with them and coordinate the meetings and allow me to have those meetings, uh, with Ed to basically, um, look at, uh, not, I wasn't talking anymore about buying. We were just having, uh, weekly conversations about life and about, uh, Young Street and Bloor Street and the changes that Toronto was seeing and the changes and the vision that we sort of saw for Toronto and specifically Bloor Street, the retail, um and uh, the residential and the community and just how Canada was changing and Toronto was changing. And the conversations became more not about a, a buy or purchase or sale it became conversations about life and philosophy and vision and and values and um, that 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 took a span of nine months and it was I was actually enjoying them because I had, the privilege to sit uh, with somebody who was quite senior to me, uh, to, in age wise and wisdom wise, and had experienced life many more decades than I had, and seen a lot, and be able to learn from him um, a lot, and and what his vision was, and what the experiences, the, the way he saw life, and it became a um, an incredible relationship. Um, and Ed's passed away, you know, Ed Whaley's passed away since then. So uh, I, I miss having a lot of those conversations. But back in 2014 uh and thirteen when I was having them, uh it, it had changed into a friendship and, and more about values and and just vision. And then one morning I got a call from him and he said, Come over, let's have coffee again in the morning. And I came up and he said, Uh uh I'm ready. I wanna I wanna transfer this ownership to you and transfer the property to you and have you develop the vision of um, the way you see and what we have been, we've been talking about the last nine months. And it took me by surprise, actually, because I, I didn't expect him to, you know, once it was a no, it was a no for, you know, a number of months. And he was, you know, very adamant in that. And, uh, and I figured, okay, you know, I just gained a friend out of it and that's fine. And, um, and then one morning, um, uh, it transferred into let's, 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 uh, let's do this. And, uh, you know, we're going to, we want to work with you and transfer the ownership to you and have you develop and execute on the vision we have. And uh, and to me, that was one of the most it was greatest responsibility. One because the family Solaries had made that decision with Ed uh, collaboratively, and uh, it took them you know just short of a year to make that decision. There were many other developers at the table for as I said for decades, and um, um, it was a huge responsibility for us to execute on the vision and the promises um uh, during the conversations and the meetings that I had with him over nine months. And uh and we did that. And um and uh, before he passed he was very proud uh of the um what we had executed and the vision that we brought and the approvals that we got. And um uh, uh, it was an incredible um honor to be have done that and it was an incredible monumental um Acquisition for not only Toronto but for Canada. It was the most expensive um, you know, acquisition at the time on a dollars per square foot basis. And uh, um, you know, it was over 227 million dollars for that corner and the adjacent site. But the complication part wasn't only the corner, it was now you have to go and convince 14 other families uh to who were also not vendors to actually sell and have it closed simultaneously. And so you have Okay, now you've got the corner, which is a key piece. Now we have to go out and get 14 other non-vendors to become vendors, and then um, agree and convince them that we need to have a simultaneous closing to make sure that we have all the parcels intact. And um, that was another Herculean task to do, and another report building task to do. And um, we did that actually together with uh, Stoleries and with Ed. Whaley and uh, and went to them and basically uh, put together the consensus. And we said, "This is much bigger than ourselves. We're doing this in order to put together something that's going to be monumental and iconic for the city." And um, you know, the last time you know, architecturally on the world stage that Canada had really done anything in Toronto was the CN Tower in the late '70s, and nothing had really been developed or built that became a secondary focal point in the skyline on the same level of that. And we were trying to express that vision to everyone else and saying, look, this is really um, the last canvas that we can do something like this on and to do something important. And this intersection is really the only intersection that I see that could support it financially, economically and from a um, lifestyle standpoint and, and how important the artery is of the Young Street subway line and the Bloor intersection and the high street retail on Bloor in order to do something really amazing. And again, that took a lot of time and, uh, we built a rapport and, and uh, uh, they entrusted that. And, and then we got 14 other families to bend in and, and sell their properties when they really weren't, uh, vendors. And it was really in order to do something, which is what we're doing now, uh, to build an iconic once in a lifetime, uh, opportunity to do something great for the city and for the country and for
0: Canada. You know, it's interesting because the podcast audience is mixed. It's residential and commercial people. So for residential people, getting one vendor is a challenge. <laughs> getting 14 is, no one can visualize that. For commercial people, they understand the challenges. So one of the things, and that's one of why I enjoy this podcast uh, so much, is all of the successful people that we interview have the same basic uh, personality, which is persistence. Uh, they have a vision. Uh, and they don't uh, let obstacles um, get in their way, and and you know, and I think your your genuine um, uh, motivation, which was pure, obviously, to build something special, and and for the family to feel that would be a legacy. I'm sure was a big part of it. Um, you know, you know your field, and you know the variety of personalities in your field. So I think that's a real compliment to you. Um, and isn't isn't the one the large, the tallest building in Canada, or will it be?
1: It is. Okay. Um, it's the it's the first super tall building in Canada, which is any building that's north of 300 meters yeah. or 1,000 feet is considered super tall. Yeah. Um, the building um, uh, will be once it's completed uh, far north of that. Um, uh, we're, we originally went in for 85 stories, we're now applied for 94 stories and just over 1,100 feet. Wow. Um, it'll be the tallest building, uh, in Canada. Um, but we didn't set out to go build the tallest building in Canada. It's, it's, it's actually interesting. It it, 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 it formed into that through the architecture and through the design and through the actual functionality of the building. Um, it wasn't that we were set out to go build the tallest building in Canada when we first set this out. We were out to build, uh, and reformat the retail format on Bloor Street that we, that you see now. We were actually the catalyst of the transformation that you're seeing on Bloor Street right now, because Bloor Street was very fragmented, and the high street retail that we had did not compete on any level with um, the high street of Michigan Avenue in Chicago, or Fifth Avenue in New York, or you know, you look at uh, Tokyo District in Ginza, or you look at uh, uh, you know, London, or any other international city. Toronto uh is an international city but our high street wasn't reflective of that from a retail commercial standpoint to build super flagship stores and to have the type of scale of retail that you see on fifth avenue or michigan avenue or anywhere else and in, in any other inter- uh, international city on their high street so we came out to build something that was going to reformat and reshape and bring the retail on blur um to sit on the same you know pedestal as other international cities and to, um, uh, have architecture work. And that was with very large scale ceiling heights, uh, and very large, uncontaminated retail spaces where it wasn't fragmented. It wasn't low ceiling heights. You know, you had this arrival into the uh, pedestrian realm, pedestrian experience on Bloor Street and, uh, you could showcase and, and give the pedestrian or the consumer, um, an arrival into the retail. Uh, and so the 39 foot ground floor retail height for uh, our flagship retail tenant um, really you know set the mark and you know once you have a ground floor that's 39 feet hot high and we also went into multi-floor retail, which is again you know one of the first in, in Toronto and Canada and again we've seen this on Fifth Avenue. we've seen this in Hong Kong and Tokyo and London and, and many other international cities um, was to build a retail that was multi-floored and multi-level. And each one of those floors are 18 feet. Hmm. So before you knew it, the height of the tower was growing only because just the retail podium was just at 61 meters on its own. Um, you know, on the commercial retail before you even got into the residential tower. So things started to add up in height. And then of course you end up with, you know, 11 over 1100 feet and, and where we are now with, with what we're looking to do currently. Um, but it was really about to, to move boundaries and to have excellence in. Uh, every square foot of the building and to do something for Toronto and for Canada that had never been done before. And to hope that it would inspire others to start to uh, architecturally uh, envision um, new buildings and and encompass a lot of the architectural principles that we were doing with Foster. Um, and so that was um, really the, what I'd say, the catalyst in terms of how we got to the height and so forth.
0: Well, you know, I found it an interesting story when I heard it the first time. I find it just as interesting the second time, and I think to your to your credit and to those people that you know, the companies, the architects, the builders, everybody associated with, I think you probably have achieved your goal. Is my guess? I mean, it's uh, it's going to be, as you said, it's going to be a remarkable landmark. And I think, wow, what a testament to a lot of hard work and a lot of years. So, congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. Let me ask the. I have a few questions I want to ask you. So. Um, how is the Toronto real estate market different now than when you first started as a developer?
1: It significantly has changed. Um, you know, when I, when I look back over the 25 years, um, but you know, if I even look back from 2007 until now, um, Toronto has become much more sophisticated in the fabric of real estate development, the real estate consumer, um, and everything in between. Including even the city and the way planning is done, zoning is done, permitting is done, uh, approvals are provided. Um, you know, so it has. I, I think if I was to use a single word to articulate uh, what has changed, I would say it's become far more sophisticated. And and that word I use or the terminology I, I, I use across the entire spectrum of the end user from the homeowner that's purchasing. I think the homeowners are much more sophisticated than they were before. I believe the retailers and tenants are far more sophisticated than they were before. I believe the city um, has become far more sophisticated than it was before. Uh, and what I mean by the city, I, I'm talking about not only the planning department and the approval processes and uh, everyone uh, in between, but also um, the fabric of the city, uh, the immigration that's come in, the multiculturalism that's come in. And and the fact that they bring those experiences and, 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 um, that, um, culture with them into Toronto, you know, Toronto and Canada is really, you know, I've often referred to this as New Switzerland. It's sort of like, you know, uh, the, the UN in terms of its fabric and its DNA and, and, and we're one of, um, the greatest places in the world to live. And, uh, and to immigrate to, um, I myself is an immigrant who came to Canada, you know, uh, at a young age of six years old. So my family chose Canada. So this is one of the greatest countries in the world. And, And, and as a result, it has become far more sophisticated. And, uh, you can see it in the architecture as well. The architecture that we see, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago has changed significantly. Um, so that's how I see the market. And of course, you know that also drives the supply demand um, and the pricing and the uh, asset class that's you know has become one of the strongest asset classes in any country. Canada's got some of the best real estate and uh, safest harbor in real estate that we've seen in the world, and we saw it and got tested even in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, in the liquidity crisis that we saw globally. You saw how resilient Canada's real estate market was. Uh, to global economic, um, recession that happened in 08, 09 in the real estate market in the US and, and Europe and, and elsewhere. And you saw how fast, uh, Toronto and Canada, uh, rebounded in that. It was like within six months, uh, of that. And, uh, and it's been strong ever since. And, uh, and even now, if we look at it through the pandemic and COVID, um, you see that the real estate market has been incredibly resilient, even in the pandemic. Uh, in terms of its value and its uh, protection against uh, uh, downturns. So I think we have a lot to be proud of, and I think that comes from the sophistication that's in the market.
0: Good good to hear that, because uh, I, I think people don't really um, understand um, how wonderful it is to be here, even with all the problems. The, you know, when you compare it to other parts of the world um, – it really is a remarkable place to live. I agree with you. Uh,
1: I, I think it's the best place. I mean, if yeah. you, you know, if I had a magic wand and you have to do it all over again, this is the best place to I, live I, for I so agree. many reasons. I agree. Uh, we're, said. we, we have, you know, uh, the best banking system in the world, one of the best banking systems in the world. We have the safest, one of the best education systems in the world. We're one of the best healthcare systems in the world. We have the safest place where we can walk out and feel safe and not worry about so many things that so many people have to worry about around the world. We are like the UN, and we actually get along uh, together in this city and in this country in, in, in ways that are re- incredibly uh, grateful, and we should be very blessed uh, compared to many other parts of the world. and uh, And we've seen that for decades, and we continue to see that even with the global challenges that happen. And we still are, in my opinion, the best place in the world to live. And I couldn't be more proud to be Canadian. I couldn't be more proud to be living here. and uh, and I think this, that the city and the country, um, through the pandemic, and through COVID, and through so many other challenges that we've seen, um, has come through very strong and very resilient and um, and very cohesive.
0: I think you're right, and and I think it's great to hear it from somebody who's so uh, involved with not only the the importance of real estate, but in the importance of giving back. And you know, I, I just appreciate you know hearing how you think. Um, I have a question here, which I think, you know, you, you probably had a chance to think about as well. And and what are the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome in your career?
2: There's so many. I don't know when to <laughs> where to begin. Okay, uh, I don't let's... know. Maybe coming
1: here and not speaking a word of English uh, okay. when I was six years old and and uh, going. I mean, you know what? Challenges are part of life. I think without the challenges in life, we would not excel in our own personal ways to evolve and to um uh, become better and greater on our on our own personal um uh, levels uh you know the, the the thing is is that i think the challenges give us all the opportunity to um enhance our lives and to figure out how we can better everything um for me i mean i've had so many challenges if i was to think about my personal life i can talk about it my business life I mean, if I was just to look at uh, the challenges, you know, on a high level on on Bloor or on the One or on the development, it was moving boundaries. And I think that even applies to our own personal life as to how do we move our own boundaries in terms of in a positive way that's going to enhance and better um, uh, the environment around us. And, you know, on Bloor, it was a uh, an incredibly um, sophisticated and complex project, not only from the structural engineering of the project to do it. Uh, but the financial engineering of the project, you know, $1.5 billion project on a single tower had never been done in Canada before and had never been financed. And, uh, so I had to figure out ways to financially engineer this, uh, and move the boundaries of financial engineering in Canada and and internationally to, to build and construct the building, which we did. Same thing to build the building structure. We had to, you know, put this hybrid exoskeleton into, in order to create the, um, retail spaces, and to build a you know uh, eight stories uh, underground uh, structure and uh, connect it to the subway, and then suspend a retail with no columns or pillars in between, and then put a uh, you know then an eighty-five story building on top of that, and 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 make it all work. So I think um, uh, all of these challenges I think make you think differently and and start to make you. Um uh, evolve and uh, and and grow outside of your normal comfort zones. And uh and it's an enhancement to everyone around you when it happens because you start to collaborate. You can't do it alone. So one of the most incredible things about challenges are it it, it puts you in a position where you have to have a collaborative um uh, community in order to get you through it. And you know, there's an old saying they said, you know, it takes more than one person to put a man on the moon. And there's a lot of truth in that and challenges. And I think, uh, those who overcome them, you know, it's a, it's a collaborative effort. But for me, there's so many of them. I, I, I would take up the whole, I would take up the whole (laughs) podcast just talking about challenges and the problems, but failure is not an option. I think with challenges, you have to look at them. And, um, I got climatized to them, to be honest with you. That's the word I use. And I learned that, uh, everything is a blessing and a curse, you know, in terms of, everything that gets uh, there's a blessing to the challenge you know there's a curse to it there's a blessing to it mm-hmm. and you have to see through it and just uh, have the resilience to know that those are the pause buttons that give you you know these challenges sort of put the pause on life in a way to make you reflect back and look at what you're doing and to do it differently in order to um leap forward you know they're 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 not designed to uh set you back they're actually you know uh designed to uh propel you forward
0: and I think all of our guests have had, n- nobody who has been successful has got there without challenges. But what's unique, and again, to our viewers, is the attitude about challenges. The attitude about challenges is find a way to overcome them, not, not be defeated by them. So, so I appreciate that. Um, I know you have, and I, I don't want to take up a lot of time, so I'm going to go to a couple more questions. Um, so let me ask this one again, interesting questions. What's the most important lesson that you learned um, in putting together the one?
1: Um, I think the, the the single most important lesson I learned was never to give up and, and, um, uh, never to, um, look at the challenges, no matter how peculiar of the task. And, um, you know, there's a solution to every problem, uh, the, the way I looked at it in business and, and to figure out what those solutions are and to search those out and not to, um, Put yourself into a space that, uh, becomes sort of a rabbit hole because there's so many, there were so many, uh, challenges where, you know, there's always going to be naysayers. There's always going to be people that are going to say this can't be done or can't, you know, and there's always problems that are going to come up. This is, this is the fabric of life. It's part of humanity that, you know, it's just designed that way. And I think the single most thing I learned with the one was, um, it had, it really taught me to pursue your, your, your vision, your passion. Don't give up on it and the challenges that get um, thrown at you are actually designed to enhance you and actually they're designed at the time when you're going through them it is like you think you know uh, the world's coming to an end and when you're in that space and in that headspace it is extremely difficult to see the light and to say that hey this is going to get better because they're um, uh, at times very scary in terms of what's happening but um, what I think I learned from it was that you overcome them, um and ninety nine percent of the things you actually worry about don't actually happen and 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 so, if
2: you go with it and and realize that uh, whatever the problems are and whatever the challenges are, they're there to help you rethink and take a pause and try to figure out a different way and, or, 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 or to recalculate your approach. And to figure out how to do it. it, it's giving you an opportunity to actually correct mistakes. That's how I looked at those challenges. But um, they're they're they're. I think I think in life you're always going to get them. And I don't know. And, and I think people. Um, it's artificial to say that they're easy or that you know. Oh yeah, you know. We were, none of them are easy for anybody. Ever. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are in life, uh, what stages you're on. You're always going to have challenges that are Herculean. And they're scaled proportionally that way. And and I think it's just, um, uh, you know, uh, the rite of passage uh, in a a way.
0: And I think it's a great attitude. Obviously, you've been successful with that attitude. And anybody who's watching or listening, remember what Sam said, because we all have those challenges. I know you're busy. So here's my last question, Sam. What are your insights into the future of Toronto
2: real estate? I think it's incredible. I think... um, We are still at the tip of the iceberg for Toronto's real estate. I, you know, uh, I think we still have a long way to go. We are um, one of the most incredible real estate opportunity cities in the world globally. I think we're still incredibly undervalued in terms of, I know everyone looks and says, Oh my God, I can't believe the real estate values today. And, you know, but I think on a global scale and as an international city, we're still incredibly undervalued with incredible still room for growth and um and um I am extremely optimistic on the future of Toronto's real estate and Canada's real estate in general. Um if you look at the immigration that's continuing to come into Canada, that's what really drives it. That's the barometer that I use and as long as you start you you still see that immigration coming, which we do, which is still in the high six figures. Uh, in terms of immigration in Canada, one of the greatest places in the world to live, you're going to continue to see Toronto's uh, future in real estate grow, the asset class grow. And um, uh, I do not see in the, in the next five years or in the short term any type of um, uh, downside on that as well. I, I continue to see the uh, growth that we've been seeing and, uh, and it's pretty stable and, and very resilient to it.
0: It's great to hear. And I think people will believe you. So that's also important. Well, the proof of it,
2: uh, you know, the proof of it is just look at how we've done through 08, 09. History is the best indication of the future. Mm-hmm. So if you look at globally how we performed in 08, 09, and you look at globally how we performed through the pandemic and through COVID, that's your, that's your proof mm-hmm. of the future, right? You look okay. at the rearview mirror and you look at how we've done. And I think that that uh, validates what I'm saying. And, and the optimism, you know, is not um, based on anything other than history mm-hmm. and, and the fundamentals of that history. And uh, as I said, the fabric of Canada's uh, uh, community. I think being a student of history is such
0: an important thing to see the future. And I think you just, you know, you kind of just, re, you know, restated what I, I believe as well. And, Sam, I want to appreciate your time. You've just told me how much you have going on. And I almost feel guilty I took an extra few minutes, but you're a delightful guest. Let's right. um, thank you so much. I want to wish you personally, and I want to wish Ms. Rahi Developments all the best in the future. And perhaps we can have you back again another time.
1: Thank you, Howard. And I wish uh, you and all uh, listeners and viewers uh, continued good health and good fortune in everyone's endeavors.
0: Thank you so much, Sam. All the best.
1: All the best. Thank you.
0: We want to thank Sam Mizrahi for joining us today, and we want to thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please like, comment, and subscribe on your favorite podcast network or on our YouTube channel. And to reach us, you can reach us either by email, info at rewithhd.com, or on our website, rewithhd.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.